0: Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13, or verses 15. I guess we could start in verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13, and we're going to go to verse verse, um, 20. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. Hear then the word of God. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that you reveal to us who your Son is. We praise you for giving us Jesus and giving us your Bible to teach us authoritatively who Jesus is. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who opens the eyes of the blind and softens the hardest of hearts that we might receive Jesus. We love Him. We live for Him. We desire His name to be exalted over all the earth and over all of Los Angeles County. And we want everyone to encounter Jesus in everything we do here as a church. And so, Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit's help to help us to understand your word because we are not focusing so much on who Jesus is, though that is the foundation and goal of all we do. We're focusing on when Jesus said, On this rock I will build my church. God, would you please give us a deeper, clearer, more fruitful understanding of what the local church is that we might breed more and more health in this local church, and if any of our friends from other local churches are visiting, that they might breed health in their local church. So help us now, in Jesus' name, Amen. When you hear the word church, what comes to your mind? I hope that that idea that comes to your mind has changed over the last few months and years as we keep growing in Christ. But what comes to people's mind? A building? Right? church building? A denomination, perhaps, the Presbyterian Church of America? The Southern Baptist Convention is not a church very deliberately, but some people still say the Southern Baptist Church as if we are one big Southern Baptist Church. Maybe a memory comes to your mind when you were young and your mom or grandma pulling your ear and forcing you to come to church and hiding in the back, talking with your friends, and that service just seemed like it went on and on and on. Maybe you still feel like that as you're an adult. Um, Maybe you think of your Sunday experience when you think of church. But it is what I want to say to you this morning. How you define the local church affects how you practice living as a local church. And so how you define and how you practice living as a local church may be the single most significant aspect of your life on earth echoing into eternity. That's a big statement. The most significant thing in your life here on earth, before you get to heaven, and then the final heaven when Christ returns on earth, the most important and significant thing you will do is how you define and live in your local church. Now, for me to justify that audacious statement, you need to understand what it is to be a local church. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about today, and actually, for the next several weeks. Today we begin a series of sermons entitled, Jesus Embodied, the local church sent to the world. We're going to be thinking about this for at least the next six weeks. Seven weeks from now is our 67th anniversary as a church. Here, March 13th, 2013. We'll take a church picture. We'll have dinner in the evening after the evening service. We'll have a special evening service. So um, we're going to be thinking about the local church for the next several weeks. We'll have a guest speaker that evening as well. Have you heard this famous quote before? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Some of you might have heard that. It's not quite a Bible verse, though it's really good, right? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Christians want to live for something great. They want to live and have an impact on the world. Senior saints... Perhaps a bit more than younger saints. Want they think a lot about how to leave a godly and Christ exalting legacy. And young 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 Christians here, I want to encourage you that you shouldn't wait till you're older to think about how you're going to leave a legacy because you might leave your legacy tonight, right? We don't know when we will die. And so you should be thinking about that now. We want what we do to last. We want to leave a legacy. That goes beyond our years and beyond our generation to the following generations that exalts Christ and glorifies God. Which means we need to know what to do in the church because that is where your legacy will be made. The church isn't, many churches aren't healthy. Many need serious improvements. Perhaps you feel that in your church if you're visiting from another church. If you're a Christian here this morning, it's likely that you feel some frustration over some aspect of your home church. That's true even of members of our church. And you know what? I think that's going to be true until we die. Even in a really healthy church, you're still going to have some frustrations. Because this is a cursed world, right? This is not heaven. And so there will be frustration. Here on earth, there will be sin. And there will be sin to deal with. Praise God for grace that overcomes our sin, but we still got to deal with it. And so, there will always be some frustration, always some room for improvement, some area where we need to grow. And I can say personally, as a pastor in our local association of churches and pastors, that I feel frustrated over the situation of many churches in our Los Angeles Southern Baptist Association. Many unhealthy churches. And you know what? Here's the good news. God knew, God knew that Christians would want to work for His glory in this world. And God knew that we would be frustrated by the challenges we face, not just in the world, but in our church. And not just in our church, but in our own soul, right? God knew the frustrations we would face. And so what does He do? He gives us His Word. Because through His Word, He gives us His Son. And as we get His Son, we get grace to face the challenges of life and live as a church for His glory in the world. And so when the Bible uses the word church, it refers to church in two ways. The universal church and the local church. The universal church is all Christians of all time, everywhere in heaven and on earth. So if you're a true Christian, you are part of the universal church. The church in the whole universe. So whether you're in Bellflower, California, or Manila in the Philippines, or London in the the U.K., if you're a true Christian, you are part of the one universal church. If you're in heaven right now, you've died a hundred years ago, you're part of the universal church. Gathered in Christ. In Jerusalem in the Mount Zion, it says in Hebrews twelve. Because we're all one in Christ, and so we're all gathered together in Him. That's a universal church. Now there's also the local church. What is the local church? The local church is a particular church, it's in a time and place. Not every Christian is part of, of the same local church. And it's also true that not every Christian is part of a local church, though that is a topic for next Sunday and not this Sunday. So I want to focus on what the local church is. Here's the main idea, and you see it here in your notes, very top of your notes. The main idea is this. You need to understand what a local church is so that you can serve your local church better. So don't look anymore at your notes. I just want you to, I'm going to give you 20 seconds of silence here, to think and answer in your mind this question. What is A local church. Give me one sentence in your mind. Don't say it out loud here. If this was Sunday night, I have you say it out loud, but it's Sunday morning. What is a local church? Okay, 20 seconds. Stink. 22nd seems like a long time, huh? What is a local church? Here is my definition. You can look now back down at your notes. And you can see my definition there. The local church is a group of people in Christ who are fully responsible for one another's discipleship, collectively and individually, in order to disciple all ethnic people groups, all the nations. Okay? That's what a local church is. A group of those who are in Christ... Who are fully responsible for each other's discipleship, collectively and individually, in order to disciple, make disciples, in order to disciple all the ethnic people groups of the world. That's what a local church is. So we have four elements of this definition, and those are going to be my four points this morning. The local church is, number one, a group of people. Number two, the local church is a group of people in Christ. Number three, the local church is fully responsible for one another's discipleship, both collectively and individually. And number four, the local church's goal and mission is to disciple all ethnic people groups for the glory of God and the satisfaction of our souls. And so, let's look at these one at a time. Number one, the local church is a group of people. In Genesis 2.18... God said this, remember he, do you remember, remember that he made Adam out of the dust of the ground? And then he, he brought before Adam all these animals in their pairs, and Adam is naming them, and he feels a deep emptiness in his heart. Why does he feel empty? He sees all, there's a male tiger and a female tiger. There's a male giraffe and a female giraffe. And he's naming them as they're going by. And he starts to feel a hole in his heart. Why? Genesis 2.18 says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. God never intended for you to live your life alone in loneliness. God was not only solving the loneliness problem where there's another person to serve and bless him. God was also serving the aloneness problem. Do you know what the aloneness problem is? Loneliness is I need people to... To to serve me, and that's that's a human need. We need other humans to serve us. That's the loneliness problem. What's the aloneness problem? The aloneness problem is that you need other people so that you can serve them. That's also a problem. If I have no one to serve, it's hard. It, it's hard. It, it, that's not how the human life was supposed supposed to be lived. If I'm made in God's image, I am not only to be served, but I am to serve. If I don't have any friends, if I don't have any family, if I don't have any other human around, not only can I be lonely in them not serving me, I am alone in not being able to serve somebody. And when you don't have that, you diminish your humanity. It's at the core of what it means to be human. And so God was solving that problem. When he made God, man in his image to reflect him, he made them to reflect him in reproducing And ruling over creation. And when you rule over creation, you don't rule as an individual. You rule as a collective. As a group. And so this is true throughout the Bible. Not only in Genesis 2, when God wanted to kill by just execution the whole world for sin, He sent a flood. And who did He save? Noah. Now notice, that's not the answer by itself, right? It's not just Noah. He didn't save one person He didn't save two people, he saved Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives. Eight people he saved. When you get to Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, Go to the land I'm going to show you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing to all the peoples. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. God is never about the individual only. He saves individuals, but he doesn't leave them alone. And so, when God saves Israel out of Egypt, he didn't save just Jacob one of the two sons of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, he saved the twelve tribes of Israel. And then when he gave them the law, the law was to give the people guidance for how they live as a people. To display God together as a people. Jesus fulfills the the prophecy or the the, the idea of Israel in himself. When Jesus dies and rises from the dead and he goes up to heaven, he gives his Holy Spirit and we become the body of Christ. A people. A people. You're not the church by yourself. You can't be the church by yourself. Now, maybe two or three are gathered in his name. Then he can be there in the midst. If you're starting a church, you can start a church like that, perhaps. But you cannot be a church by yourself. So, point number one, very obvious. The church is a group of people, and it's not an individual. The word church means assembly or gathering in the Bible. That's what the word means. Assembly, gathering, congregation. A congregation is a group that is congregating, that is assembling, that is gathering. That's what the word means. So you can't be an individual and be a gathering, or an assembly, or a congregation, or a church. Okay, that's number one. The local church is a group of people. That's an easy one. Our first and fourth are the short ones. Our second and third are the big ones, okay? Just so you're mapping our time appropriately. Number two, the local church is a group of people in... Christ. The local church is a group of people in Christ. And so we have here, Paul makes this point over and over again. Let me just cite to you a few verses. 1 Corinthians 1 2 says this To God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 1 The church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1 1 To the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Colossians one, two, to the saints in Christ at Colossae. If you are a Christian, you are in who? In Christ. You know how many times we're called Christians in the Bible? One, maybe at best two in the book of Acts. You know how many times we're called in Christ? Everywhere. It's all over the place. The one if there's one label to define a Christian in the New Testament, it is someone who is in Christ. United to Christ. And so I took that as part of our definition that we are in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. This is one long, run-on sentence in Paul's writing. We break it up in English to several sentences just so we don't lose the thought. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 Ephesians 1, 3-14 says this. I want you to notice how many times it says in Christ or in Him. Okay? Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in, in who? In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. For He chose us in Him Before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ according to His favor and will. To the praise of the glory of His grace that He favored with us in the Beloved. That's in Christ. So three times already in four verses in Christ. We have redemption in in Him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, that he planned in him in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment, to bring everything together in who in the Messiah both things in heaven and things on earth in Him. That's seven times now. We have also received an inheritance in Him, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of His will, so that we who had already put our hope in Him, in Christ, might bring praise to His glory. Verse 13, When you heard the message of truth, The gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, ten times now, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Ten times in twelve verses, we are in Christ. We believe in Christ. We hope in Christ. Our existence is in Jesus. And when you are, and what does that mean? It means to be united to Jesus. That means, just like when you get married, if you get married to someone and you have $10,000 of debt and your spouse is worth $800,000, what happens to your debt? It gets subsumed into your, hopefully, some some couples, I think, unwisely and unbiblically have separate bank accounts. That's a different, different discussion. We'll leave that aside for now. Okay. Point here. I might have stepped on toes there. Point here is that in sharing all of life, the 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 what the spouse who was in debt inherits or now is united and they're one flesh. So the account of the other spouse is accounted to them, and the debt is accounted, and therefore the debt is now shared or absolved. Right? It's going to be paid off now. That's what happens when you unite to Jesus. You know what you have? Sin. You got a lot of debt. Right, Not $10,000. You got millions or billions of dollars of debt in your sins. And then Jesus marries us. Ephesians 5. And when we're united to Him, when we're united to Christ, He takes all of our sin. And where did He take it? On the cross, right? He dies on the cross and takes all of our debt. Because we're united to Him now. So when He dies, we die with Him because we're all one. That's Romans 6. We die with Christ, and He dies for our sins because He marries us. He takes our debt, and we get His righteousness. And so, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, "He made God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him, in Him, there it is again, in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. We get His righteousness, He gets our sin. Isn't that a sweet deal for us sinners who are in debt, right? That Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and He washed it white as snow. And not only did He wash it, He gives us His full and complete righteousness as we are united to Him. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Now, how do you get Christ to pay for your sins? How do you get in the marriage? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For, by, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not from you. Even your faith is not from you ultimately, though you need to exercise it personally. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. How do you get united to Jesus? Through faith in Christ. Trust in Him. If you're not a Christian this morning, you might have grown up in the church. Maybe you're a child still, and you're, you're here in church because you have to be, because your parents are forcing you to be here. My parents forced me to go to church. I thank God for it. But that's true. And so if you're here and you're forced to be here, or your friend dr- drug you here this morning and you, you don't want to be here, but you're here, here's what God is saying to you. You are a sinner in a massive amount of debt, and the payment is hell. It's death. And yet Jesus dies for sinners and rises from the dead and holds out his hands to everyone and says, repent from your sins, repent from your own righteousness, and trust in my death for your sins, and trust in my righteousness, not yours, and you'll be saved. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, here's what God's telling you. Trust in Christ. Turn from your sins. Turn from your religion. Turn from your righteousness. Children, you're not a Christian because your parents are Christian. You're you're only going to be a Christian if you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus on your own. And so that is what God is calling all of us to do, even this morning. And if you do that, you become part of the universal church because now you are in Christ. Now you're part of the universal church. And when you are in Christ, you start to fight sin in your life, you start to kill sin in your life, and live for His glory. And so the second part of the definition is that the local church is a group of people in Christ. He is the vine, we are the branches. He lives in us, we live in Him, and through Him we bear much fruit. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father. And then He says, now we are one. I am in you, and you are in me. And so there we have our definition of those who are part of the church are those who are in Christ. Now, not everyone who says they're in Christ are actually in Christ. I hope you understand that. You need to understand that. Just because someone says they're a Christian, doesn't mean that they are necessarily a Christian. Just because someone says they believe in the gospel, doesn't necessarily mean they believe in the gospel. Professing it and living it are not the same thing, though professing it is required. And so in Romans 6.3, Listen, I'm going to read some verses from Romans 6. You can turn there if you want, but I'm going to be faster because of the sake of time. So just listen to these verses. Romans 6.3 says this. Are you unaware that all of us who are immersed or baptized into Christ Jesus, united to Him, were baptized into His death? Verse 5. If we have been joined with Him in the likeness of His death, we will also certainly be like Him in the likeness of His resurrection. Since a person, verse 7, who has died is freed from sins. So therefore, verse, chap, verse 11, you too are to consider yourself dead to sins, but alive to Christ. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. And then you get to Romans 8, verse 12 and 13, and it says this, Brothers, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live according to the Spirit, you will live. For all those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons. Here's what I'm saying. If you're united to Christ, gets what you're going to do with sin. You're going to struggle with it, you're going to fight it, and oftentimes you're going to kill it. And if there is no struggle, and if there is no fight, and if there is no killing of any sins, then you're not following God's Spirit. And all those who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons. If you're not led by God's Spirit, you're not God's sons. Even if you say you are, even if you say you're a Christian, even if you say the Gospel, even if you say you're in Christ... Just saying it doesn't make it so. You actually have to be united to Him by faith. Saving faith. And Jesus said in John 14, John 15, Abide in me, and I in you. That's the union with Christ. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, so neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me or abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me, and I in him, produces much fruit. Because apart from me you can do Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Hell. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this that you produce much fruit and prove, and you prove to be my disciples. You prove you're a disciple. When you bear fruit, you bear fruit as you abide in Christ. You abide in Christ because you have already been one with Christ by faith. If you are not bearing fruit, you might not be a Christian, even though you say you are. And the reason I'm spending time on this here is because if you don't get this right, you're going to ruin the church. If you fill the church with membership of people who are not truly saved in a congregational church where we have business meetings and you get votes and we get to direct the church and imagine filling this church with a majority of people who are not truly saved. What would happen in a business meeting? Chaos. Right? The church would go astray at that point. It's very important, especially in a Baptist church of all churches, that you make sure that every member on our role is truly a Christian as much as it is in your power. We can't read anyone's hearts. I'm not saying we're God, but we can see fruit. The fruit of sin and the fruit of righteousness. And if you're going to be a healthy church, if we are going to be a healthy church, we need to understand that the local church is made up of those who are actually, functionally, evidently in Christ. And it shows in their life in some way. I'm not saying perfection. Everyone in this room is going to sin today. And you will sin this week. And we will catch each other in sin. And we will confront each other. But then we will see the fruit of repentance. Repentance. We'll see the fruit of love. We'll see the fruit of restoration. Or we'll see the expression of unrepentance, which might show that you're not really a Christian. Very important that this is part of the definition, those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're not a Christian, perhaps you've been turned off to the idea of Christianity or the church because of hypocrisy. Let me say, number one, if you know me long enough, you're going to see hypocrisy in my life somewhere because I'm still a sinner. Every Christian struggles with every, every. Christian falls into hypocrisy because every Christian sins. But hypocrisy is only sustained when you don't repent. And so you might have seen a Christian before his repentance. And I just want to say, if we've sinned against you, and we probably have, I'm sure we have, we need to ask God for forgiveness and we need to ask you for forgiveness. So I would plead with you to make known our hypocrisy so that we could ask you for forgiveness and admit our sin. But I also want to say this. You might hate hypocrisy, and that's right. But you know who who hates it more? God does. And he tells us, even in verses like this, that there is such a thing as a fake Christian. And so if you're not a Christian, you say, I don't want to be a Christian, there's all these fake Christians. You know what God says? You're right. There are fake Christians. But that doesn't mean Christianity isn't true. It doesn't mean Jesus didn't die for your sins and rise from the dead if you would repent from your sins and trust in him. So if you're not a Christian, I just challenge you to think about that. For a church, we need to test ourselves to see whether we are truly in the faith. That's 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves unless you fail to meet the test. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Okay? So a local church is a group of people, but it's not just any people. It's a group of people who profess to be in Christ. Okay. Profess faith in Christ. Okay, number three. I told you number two and number, two, number three are the big ones. Number three, the local church is not only a group of people in Christ, they are fully responsible for one another's discipleship. If you're taking notes here and you have a pen, I want you to circle the word fully. Circle the word fully. That is the key and operative word here. The local church is those who are fully responsible for one another's discipleship in Christ Jesus. What does this mean to be fully responsible for one another's discipleship? This means that we are responsible not only for our growth, but also the growth of others. You're responsible to grow if you're a Christian, right? We have a newborn. Not a newborn anymore. We have a two-month-old. You know what her responsibility is to do? To cry all the time, to drink milk, and to sleep. And to go to the bathroom, to fill up the diaper. That's her job. And guess what she does as she keeps doing that day in and day out? She grows. That's her job. That's all we're asking of her. And then as you get older, you get a few more responsibilities. But the point is, if you have life, you have growth. And if you have growth, you're responsible to grow. So if you are if you are part of a, of a local church, you are fully responsible for your own Christian growth and for the growth of others around you. That's what you're responsible to do. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. You're in Ephesians already, right? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. Ephesians 4.11 says that God gives gifts to the church. You know what kind of gifts God gives to the church? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now you might say, PJ, I didn't know you were a gift to the church. You don't feel like a gift to the church. I, I could understand that at times, for sure. But that's what the Bible says, okay? So, just go in there. But verse 12 says this. Why does God give pastors and teachers and evangelists to the church? Why? Verse 12. For the training or the equipping of the saints in the what? Work of the what? Ministry. Ministry. So, who's doing the work of the ministry? The saints. What's the pastor's job? To train the saints to do their job. So, who's doing the work of the ministry? The saints are. Raise your hand if you are a believer in Christ Jesus. Keep your hand up. If you keep your hand up, that means that you're also saying you're a saint. Okay? Put your hand back down. That means you're saying that you're a saint, which means pastors are to equip you so that you can do the work of the ministry. And what is that work of the ministry? Look at verse 12. To build up the what? Build up the body of Christ. Until we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But what are we going to do in verse 15? How are we going to build up the body? Verse 15, speaking the truth in what? Love. There it is. If you want to say, what's my job as a member to build up the body? What is PJ trying to equip me to do? I'm trying to equip you to speak the truth in love. If you're not speaking the truth, you're not going to be serving people you won't build up the body. You'll let the body decay. So you need to speak. If you're silent, you're not building up the body. If you're speaking lies and not the truth, you're not building up the body. You need to speak the truth. If you speak the truth boldly, but you're you're a jerk, you're angry, and you're not speaking the truth in what? Love. Love? You're not building up the church. So what do you need to do? Well, you need to, I guess in one way, you guys to say, PJ, equip me. Right? And i got to look in the mirror and say, am I doing it? Am I being faithful to equipping you to speak the truth in love to build up the church? That's what the work of the ministry is. Whether we're talking about serving non-Christians or serving Christians, the way you build up the body of Christ in evangelism is speak the truth in love to your non-Christian neighbors. And if they join the church, you're building up the body. And then what do you do in the church? You speak truth and love to fellow church members. And when you do that, guess what? You're building up the body. And what's the, what's the result of that? In verse 16 or verse 15, speaking the truth in love, let us what? Grow. We grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. For for him, from him the whole body being fitted and knitted together, knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Every single part of the body what we call a member of the body, right? Every single individual member of the body builds up the church in love by speaking the truth in love to one another and meeting each other's needs in love. That's your job. That's what the local church is. It's a group who takes responsibility for each other's discipleship, for their growth in Christ. It's a tall order. So not only do you need to grow yourself, you need to actually look around at other people and say, how can I help this person grow? And that's what a faithful member does. And we'll talk more about that next week. We'll fill that out with, with more thinking. But this is just the basic commandment of Jesus, John 13, 34 and 35. A new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. In this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. That's basic Christianity. Local church life, loving one another, helping each other grow, being responsible for each other's discipleship in following Jesus, is basic Christianity. And you are to do this, notice I put in my definition here, not just individually, that's talking to each other individually, but also what? Collectively. Which which means, which means that when we have a business meeting, very practically, that you speak into it so that we can collectively grow. When we set the direction of the church and the pastor makes his recommendations, the church is not checked out, but the church is involved in thinking and praying about how to make sure collectively we take responsibility for our collective discipleship and our individual discipleship. Now, when I talk about collectively, I talk about collectively in three words. And I've got to be brief here because I've got to move on for the sake of time. But talk about collectively in three words in communication, renewed communication, and excommunication. In communication, renewed communication, excommunication. Now, only one of those words you'll know right away what I'm talking about, which is that one. Excommunication, right? Excommunication is Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, and we're going to be talking about this in the next two weeks. That's where you, if, um, you can turn to Matthew if you want, but it's basically where, what happens. If I sin against, let's just say I'm not a pastor. In a pastor sense, you actually do it publicly right away, oftentimes. But let's say I'm not a pastor, and I sin against um, my dad, who's also a member of this church. He confronts me, I refuse to repent. He takes Barbara and Pastor Merle with them, the three of them confront me, and I say, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Then what do they do in Matthew 18? They take it to the church. church. Then in a business meeting, they'll tell the church, you know, Pastor Merle, Barbara, and Ray have confronted PJ. He refuses to repent. If I refuse to listen to the church, the church then talks about it. They make a motion to say, we as a church call PJ to repent from his sin of stealing $50 from Ray's wallet before he put an offering plate or something like that. Then, then I, if I refuse to repent there, what do you do as a church? You excommunicate, you exclude, you put them out of a church and treat them like a tax collector or an unbeliever, a Gentile, it says in Matthew 18, verse 17. That's what a church does, excommunication. But it doesn't only do excommunication, and even when they do excommunication, is it because the church is mad and they just like to shake their mighty fist? No, they want to restore the sinner. So that's what a church does. Collectively, they are caring for my discipleship, right? Right? By excommunicating me, they are taking responsibility for my discipleship. They're not only taking responsibility, they're taking full responsibility. See, this is the difference between a church and a bunch of friends that hang out and read the Bible together. This is the difference between a church and a Bible study group. This is the difference between a church and a college ministry. This is the difference between a church and the Los Angeles Southern Baptist Association of Churches. This is the difference between a church and the Southern Baptist Convention of Churches. Is that in the local church, you can be excommunicated but not only excommunicated, you could also be incommunicated. How is someone incommunicated in a church? They are taken into membership, and if they've never, if they're a new Christian, the way they're taken into membership is through the ordinance of Baptist. baptism. And so that's in communication. We as a church take people in to the communion. We in communion them, and then what do we do regularly? We take. Communion. Now we're going to be doing it once a month. Last year was every other month. This year it's every month. We will renew our communication, our communion together. That's what a church does collectively. That's, you don't get that with any other group of Christians. In communication, renewed communication, excommunication. All three very churchy, local churchy ways. Sorry for not a more technical term. Local churchy ways. Of taking full responsibility for one another's discipleship. That's what a church is. That's what a church does. If you turn to Matthew 16, verse... Um, you're in Matthew 8 Did you turn to Matthew 18? Okay, turn to Matthew 16. You know why this is what the church does? This was our reading this morning. Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus says this, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. And what will he give to, to Peter here? I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. When you get to Matthew 18, verse 17, the same words are used. When the church excommunicates someone, Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. In other words, the church gets the what? The keys. That's what a local church does. When I say collective responsibility, full responsibility, it means you get the keys. We just took over, or not took over, we just terminated our uh, director of our association, and what we did was we changed the locks on the doors. And guess what I have on my keychain? Keys. I got keys to the Los Angeles Southern Baptist Association. What does that mean that I have keys? It means I have what? Access, right? I have access and authority to enter into the facility. And when, when the church is given the keys of the kingdom, what does that mean? That we have access to open the lock and say, yes, come in and, and, and form as a local church. You are a member of the universal church, join our church, we will baptize you. And then if we excommunicate and lock somebody out, the church has the keys. That's what a local church has, that's what a local church does. They bind and they loose, they lock and they unlock with the keys, true gospel teaching, true doctrine, and true Christians, true confessors, they bind true confessors to the church, they they um, they loose untrue confessors outside of the church. Okay, so what is, how does this apply to us? Okay, how does this apply? If you're not a Christian, you're saying, wow, this is a lot of talk about a church. Yes, it is. Um, if you're not a Christian, here's what I want to say to you. You are welcome to share life with Christians. The church shares life together, but if you're not a Christian, you're welcome to share life with us as we follow Jesus. Now, you don't, we can't force you to believe in Jesus. We will never, hopefully, hopefully, I'm speaking for everyone here, we will never try to coerce you or manipulate you to follow Jesus. We will just teach who Jesus is, we'll answer our quest, your questions as best we can, and we will pray for you. One of my friends, who's now a Christian, you know, he said to me in 2006, We would play basketball regularly, and he said, you know what, PJ, I like hanging out with you. I like that you're my friend, but can you please stop talking to me about Jesus? I don't ever want you to talk to me about Jesus again. Because every time we talk, it would become an argument. I would just kind of answer his questions and say, he said he was a Christian. I said, you're not a Christian. You don't even know what the gospel is. And so he was very offended that I said he wasn't a Christian, as some of you could imagine, right? (laughs) But we were friends. And he said, let's stop, let's stop talking about Jesus. I don't ever want to talk to you about Jesus anymore. What do you do with that? You're real friends. You want to be a loyal friend. You also want to be loyal to Jesus. What do you do? You could say, okay, I'll never talk to you about Jesus again. Do you think I should do that? No. You could say, I don't care what you say. I'll talk about Jesus anytime I want, and I'll talk to him about Jesus right now. and talk to him about it right now again. Right? I could do that. I don't recommend that either. What I said was, okay, I will talk about Jesus less. But because Jesus defines who I am, I cannot not talk about Jesus because that's for me to not be who I am so you cannot expect you cannot say I want to keep being your friend and but you can't be who you are so I, I promise I'll be more sensitive I'll be less frequent but I cannot not talk about Jesus and be who I am now the reason I say that For non-Christians here is to say, you are welcome to hang out with us. And we don't want to be stuffy, grumpy, cranky Christians who just keep shaking our fist and say, you need to repent right now or else we're going to not be your friend anymore. No, that's not true. We'll be your friend. But you can't expect us to not talk about Jesus. We will talk about him. Not only because we love him, but because we love you. And we want you to know the greatest gift in the world. Now, if you're a Christian, here's what I want to say to you. Is we need to destroy imposter Christianity. We need to destroy Christianity that's private. If you're going to care for each other collectively and be responsible for each other, Christianity, here's what one pastor says, Christianity is personal, but it's not private. Americans, Western individualism teaches that your life is private and it's none of other people's business. The New Testament teaches that your life is the business of your church members. Not to be nosy into every detail of everything, but just like my life is my wife's business, in a very significant sense, and my life is my son's business, in a significant sense, so it is that my life is your business. Not just because I'm your pastor, but even before that, because I'm a member of this church. And you are responsible for my faith. And I'm responsible for your growth as well. And therefore, it is each other's business. That gets messy, and we'll talk about how to make sure grace dominates um, in this in this in this reality. But that's that's the reality: is that we are responsible. Christianity is not private; it's personal, but it's not private. Okay. As a Christian, I want you to think about this: Why do people choose churches? You know, what? let me just say the last thing, and then I'll close. Let me just—I'm not going to really explain the last point. Let's just let me just say it. Number four here: the local church. The local church's mission is to disciple all ethnic people groups. As we disciple each other and grow, we send out missionaries, we raise up disciples, we send people out, we transfer members to other churches, and guess what's going on in all of this life? We are discipling each other to eventually disciple all the nations. That's the mission of the church. So don't ever lose that from the goal. But now, let me see if I could, with skipping the fourth point, let me see if I could pull all this in, in this last uh, three or four minutes. Why do people choose churches? Let me define the church again and then answer this question. What is the local church? The local church is a group of those in Christ who are responsible, who are fully responsible for one another's discipleship collectively and individually in order to disciple all ethnic people groups. That's the definition, okay? Now, why do people choose to go to church? Why do they choose the churches they chose? Why did you choose this church if this is your church? Here are some answers that are given. Convenience. It's convenient to go to this church. Or the preacher's style or personality. Or the youth group. Or I like the music style or the music songs. I like the proximity to my house. I like the denominational brand. I like warmth and friendliness of the greeting on my first impression. I go to this church. I committed to this church because my friend goes there. I like this church because there are people my age here. I chose this church because there are a lot of people in that church and I don't like an empty church. I chose this church because it's already a healthy church. I want to tell you this morning that though these answers are not necessarily bad, some are worse than others and some are actually good, they all miss the main point. All those answers miss the main point. So we have a considering membership class in this church so people start to ask this question when they consider joining our church. Are these people in Christ? Do they gospelize in the pulpit and in casual conversation? Will they faithfully take responsibility for my discipleship even to the point of kicking me out if I refuse to repent? Do I want to take full responsibility for this group of people? Is this church focused on making disciples of all ethnic people groups? Those are the questions I want people asking when they join this church. Because that's what a church is. That's the essence of the church. These questions are rarely, if ever, asked in evangelicalism today, and even in the Southern Baptist Convention. And if they are, they're secondary to the style of the music or to the people that they like. It's misguided. If they do consider these core questions, and these are core questions, they're secondary or on the third tier of priority. And yet these core questions that you ought to be considering when you think about joining a church are important. Why? Because these are the core elements through which you will encounter Jesus. Why do you want a church? Because you want Jesus. So you need people who are in Jesus and tell you about Jesus and show you the responsibility for each other and the care like Jesus and who confess sin so they show you the mercy of Jesus and care for all ethnic people groups to all the nations because Jesus wants His glory spread to all nations. Why do you come on Sundays? Is it because you have a drive to take full responsibility for each other's following of Jesus? How do we measure whether we had a successful business meeting in our church? Did it strengthen our church members and position us better to take full responsibility for each other's following of Jesus? First Southern Baptist Church, brothers and sisters here, we need to grow. We need to continue to grow. We are growing. You have been growing before I got here. We need to continue to grow in church health. We want to be a church where everyone encounters... Jesus, in everything we do. We want to enjoy and embody and explain Jesus. And so here are the next big steps I'm recommending our church think about. As I preach for the next few sermons, think about these things before our next business meeting in April. Two things. Number one, I want us to begin to figure out together how we can clean up our membership roles so that it accurately reflects this definition. If the church is those who take full responsibility for one another's discipleship, a church role of 975 plus members is not a faithful reflection of what a local church is. And so we need to clean the roles. I'm not saying how yet. I'm just saying think about it. You come to the business meeting with your ideas. You tell me how you think we should be cleaning the roles. That's our responsibility. Because right now, currently, we are, full, we are in full responsibility of all of them. Even though you might not know who they are. That's first. Secondly, I want you to think about this that we adopt an updated church covenant in an exceptional business meeting for our church to clarify that we are taking full responsibility for one another. Think about those things and we will think about how to do that together as a church in the days to come. Let me conclude with this. The local church is so important. Why? It's the pillar of truth proclaiming Jesus to the world. It's the body of Christ serving the world tangibly. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit bringing God's presence into this world. It's the family of God reconciling estranged brothers and sisters back to the Father. It's the light in a very, very dark world. You want to make a difference in the world, right? For the supremacy of God? Do you want to leave a lasting legacy where your life counts? You do. Then this is the one thing you must do. You must leave this church in a better place than when you found it. Whether you're going to be a member here for three more months or 30 more years, you must leave this church in a better place than when you found it. Leave us better in trusting Christ. Leave us better in taking responsibility for others. Lead us better. Leave us better in letting us take responsibility for each other by opening up your life and showing us what that looks like. Leave us better in discipling each other so that we disciple the neighbors and the nations. And don't just leave us better by the end of your time here as a member. Leave us better by the time you get in your car and drive home this morning. The local church is Christ's precious gift to us. It's precious because in the local church, Jesus is giving us himself. Who takes ultimate responsibility for our discipleship? Jesus does. Who empowers us to bless and serve others? Jesus does. Who goes with us as we disciple the neighbors and the nations? Jesus does. In our local church, we get Jesus. So memorize this definition. Understand the essence of what a local church is. Jesus is here. Let's enjoy him together. Father, we thank you for your word that teaches us what we're doing here as a church. Lord, we want to glorify you in this church. We want Christ to be seen as supreme because he is. We want to explain Jesus, that people might know and understand who He is. We want to embody Jesus so that they might see His love and His care and His humility and His power. We want to enjoy Jesus, that they might see His goodness and His mercy and His kindness and His grace. And so, Father, we know that we have no power to explain, embody, or enjoy Your Son unless we encounter Your Son. And so we pray now, Lord, that as we encounter Jesus together in our conversations, in our singing, in our closing, in our evening service tonight, we pray that we would grow in taking full responsibility for each other's discipleship, both collectively and individually, in order that we might disciple all ethnic people groups all over the world. Apart from you, Lord Jesus, we can do nothing. So help us. In Jesus' name, amen.